team, we're so blessed to have many gifted staff and elders and people in the body of Christ here. That was a blessing. And the worship as well. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. If you're visiting with us, you're more than welcome. Our ushers will come. We have plenty of extra Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be glad to give you a Bible so you can follow along with us. Hey, look what we got here, a double wide. Do you see this? Now I don't have to have two, two anymore. I, they found me a nice double wide that I could get everything up here. This week I was um, getting some routine testing and the nurse said to me, you must be a coach. And I said, how did you know that? And she said, I know everything. I said, you do? I said, well, bet you don't know this. What would you say if you died and God said, why should I let you into heaven? She said, well, I would say, um, he should let me in. I said, well, what about your sin? She said, I'm not a sinner. She knows everything. I said, well, that's something you don't know. The Bible says if you tell God you have not sinned, you're calling God a liar. So as we began to talk, it just reminds me of what's going on on this planet. Like one of the beauties of having a Bible is to know the truth and to have a worldview that makes sense. The worldview that makes sense from the Bible is that God created this world, hung it in space, created Adam and Eve, our first parents, and that when they rebelled against God, sin entered the world. God loves people, he hates sin. So heaven went up to heaven. And from then on, Adam was expelled from the presence of God, and ever since then, people have been wandering around on this planet trying to figure out why they're here. But early on in the story, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 4, then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the story of the Bible is a story of a loving God seeking to rescue a world that's in rebellion, who's wandered from him. And we learn that he would provide it through a sacrifice, the shedding of blood that would ultimately be through his son. And that anyone can have a relationship with him who comes in faith and repentance and believes the promises of the gospel and becomes a forgiven follower of Jesus, the Messiah. And when you do that, you become a part of what the Bible calls his church. A church is not a building, it's people. The church just came into this building. And so if you're here visiting or whether you've been here a long time, we need to be reminded of the purpose of the church. And that is to make disciples, to invite people to become forgiven followers. If you're not sure if your sins are forgiven yet, that's the entry point. You, you can't put the cart before the horse and you'll, you'll hear and be reminded how to do that if you haven't heard. If you are forgiven, you're becoming a Christ-centered follower. He's transforming you. He's more concerned about who you are and who I am than what we do. He's, he's moving me away from my sin and changing me into the image of Christ. And then he wants me to make other disciples. And so he does that through a variety of ways. But one of them is a gathering for worship, but also service and especially connecting with other believers. We make a big deal here that we want you to get connected. If you are not in a small group or a men's study or a women's study or a support group or meeting with other Christians, you got to do that. That's not a negotiable. If it's not here, find another church. But you cannot grow and be held accountable and mature as a Christian apart from community, and you can't do it in a large setting like this. A lot of people don't like that. They just like a Bible conference 
Nobody's speaking into my life. Nobody notices I'm not here. It's not what we're doing here. If you're looking for a Bible conference, go somewhere else. But if you want to follow Christ and grow, we really want to help you to get connected. We study the Bible. We pray together. And then we try to encourage each other during the week. The Bible says, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Exhort one another, lest our hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Give to one another. Correct one another. Seek out those who are lost. Help the weak. Expand the gospel. Do good works to glorify your Father. And then when we gather, we get together and we pray and worship and study again. So let's pray, and then we'll study. Father, today I want to pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through your word to bring transformation to the lives of the church. Jesus said when we gather in his name that he is in our midst. And so right now I want to be conscious and turn the eyes of all of the church to Jesus. For he said that he walks among the churches and his eyes are like a flame of fire. And the loving Lord Jesus who bought us with his blood, he searches us. Lord, you know whether we're lukewarm, whether we've lost our first love, whether our deeds are not yet complete, but you've told us that those whom you love, you, you rebuke and you correct. And so repentance and spiritual growth is the ongoing privilege of us as Christians. So may your word today be our encouragement as we gather to be fed, as we gather to be encouraged, as we gather to be instructed and even corrected. We pray for those who are visiting or who have not yet been saved that you'll work in their hearts by the Holy Spirit to bring them to Christ. And Father, I pray that we will all leave here edified and strengthened in our faith through communion and worship and the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus has a mission for us, as Austin said. We're all missionaries, we're all ministers, we all have people that God puts into our lives. And I hope as you've been going through the upper room, you've been thinking about this and praying for this. Jesus wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to change into Christ-like character, the fruit of the Spirit. He wants you to have the fruit of Christian conduct where you're becoming more and more like him. Paul calls it the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ that fruit of repentance that, that turns from sin and turns to follow and shows love and serves other people. And then the fruit of converts that we're all on mission, praying for our kids and our family and our friends and our loved ones and the, the lost world, praying regularly for the, the countries like Lebanon and, and the Ananias house and persecuted Christians. And part of how Jesus prepares us is that he speaks to us through his word. And so as he had the disciples in the upper room, we saw last week that he told them two things. One, he said, you're in for some coming heat. The time is coming now where they're going to make fun of you, persecute you, hurt you, want to kill you. But then he said, but I'm going to give you the Spirit's help. The Spirit of God is going to come when I leave, and you can do great things. And part of that is because he will bear witness through you, and you will bear witness, and he will convict the world of their sin. Please be praying that the people you know, including your children, will be convicted of sin. Because if you're not convicted of sin, you feel no reason why you need to be forgiven. But as we're convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, we turn to the Lord in faith 
and we receive his grace and we're forgiven. So Jesus says the Spirit of God will come. He'll give you conviction. He will give you revelation. He'll complete the scriptures and he will bring about glorification. He'll glorify me. But the last thing that he, we didn't get to last week, there was heat and help, but, but there's hope. But in the midst of this hope that he's going to give the disciples at the end of chapter 16, this hope is going to be in the midst of imminent pain. So when he says, hey, heat's coming, you're going to be persecuted, he's like, however, there's something coming even sooner. And that's pain. So start with me in verses 16 through 19, because this is going to prepare us for the point that we're going to see. And that is that Jesus is going to tell us that the awful crucifixion is going to bring temporary agony to his followers and temporary ecstasy to the world. But he sets this up with the phrase, a little while. And when he says a little while, he means a little while. It's, it's Thursday night, less than 24 hours, he's going to be hanging on a cross. So look at verse 16. A little while and you'll no longer behold me. He's not talking about hide and seek. And again... A little while and you'll see me. Some of the disciples therefore said to one another, what, 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 what is he telling us? A little while, you won't behold me. A little while and you will see me. What does he mean? Because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. You think John's emphasizing this? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wished to question him and he said to them, are you deliberating about this, that I said, a little while, and again, in a little while, you'll see me? And they're like, yeah. So when he means a little while, he's saying, look, the need is imminent and urgent. And it's going to be imminent pain. So let's start with this. He says, in a little while, you're going to have awful agony. And it's going to happen really soon. And they were absolutely clueless. Remember, just a few days ago was Palm Sunday, and they're coming in, marching in Jerusalem. Hosanna the king. They're already picturing the Romans surrendering. They're already ordering on eBay which kind of throne they want to sit next to Jesus. They're jockeying for their position. Who will be secretary of state? And Jesus is going, no, I'm going to be hanging on a bloody cross before you know it. And it's going to be really rough. So... He's going to tell us this. He's going to say, there's imminent agony for you, imminent ecstasy for the world, because I'm going to die. But then he goes, but then there's going to be imminent agony for the world, because I'm going to judge them, and permanent ecstasy for you, because I'm going to rise again. So let's start in verse 20, where, where we'll see this idea of this agony that waits for the disciples. Now, they're pretty excited, right? He says, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament. That's a bummer. But the world will rejoice. They're going to have a blast. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now again, they do not get it. He's told them three times I'm going to be crucified. The Bible says they couldn't understand it. So they have no idea what he means by this. But we know because we're reading from our seats. So he says, let me give you an illustration. It's like when a woman gives birth. When a woman gives birth, she's in travail 
and she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more. And I know some of you ladies are going, yeah, right. How does he know? Well, one way I know that's true is you'd never have a second kid, right? You'd be like, I'm never doing that again. Some of you do say that. For joy that a child has been born. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I'll see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. You know, it's kind of hard. That'd be like you're on your way to the first day of school and your mom says, you're going to have a terrible day. You're going to cry a lot. It's going to be hideous. But don't worry. It's going to be really great. You're going to be really happy later. And you're like, what? So why the agony of disciples? Well, just think about they've been following Christ for three and a half years. They're about to be separated from the Savior for the first time. They're going to be prevented from his presence. Their dreams are about to be dashed and destroyed. Their minds are about to be completely confused. Their sorrow is about to suffocate them, and their anguish is going to be excruciating. We're talking about some serious pain. They had no idea the fear that was going to await them in, in, in just less than 24 hours. They were going to run like scared rabbits. In, in just a few moments, Jesus said, instead of dreaming about sitting by my side, you're going to have nightmares about dying by my side. So it's going to be bad. And he says, and while all this is going to, going to go on, the world's going to be like, yes. And you're like, are these people crazy? The Bible says the world will rejoice. And you're like, what kind of a sicko would rejoice when God's hanging on a cross and dying? But this is the nature of sin and Satan and rebellion. It's a story in the book of Revelation when the two witnesses are put to death in Revelation chapter 11. It says, the, the dragon will make war with them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street. And then it says, the people from the tribes, tongues, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half years, won't allow them to bury them, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice and celebrate and send gifts to one another. Why would the world be in ecstasy at the crucifixion and agony of Christ? And it's pretty simple when you think about it. Because when Christ came to earth, he, he pronounced judgment. He said, I'm God. And you're sinners. And the status quo is not going to work. Unless you come to me, you're going to die in your sins. And that upset the, the establishment. So now that he's dead, they're going to go, no more fear of fateful judgment. No more feelings of sinful guilt. No need to forfeit my sinful pleasures. You see, Jesus spoke of coming out of darkness. The reason more people aren't Christians is not because none of them have heard. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil. Many will perish and go to hell, the Bible says, because they wouldn't receive the truth to be saved, but they took pleasure in their sins. And Jesus is going, do the math. Does anybody have half a brain? What good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Better to enter heaven if your right hand's dragging you into sin. Cut it off. Cut your losses and turn from your sin. But if Jesus is dead, I don't need to worry about that anymore. I don't need to forfeit my prestige and my prominence and my position and my popularity in the world. I don't need to forfeit prestige, forfeit sin, 
And I don't even need to fling away my pride. I can prance around like a rooster. I don't need to forsake my own control of my life. I don't need to die to myself like Jesus said. Ding dong, the Savior's dead. And the disciples are still going, what? So having learned about the awful crucifixion, now Christ is going to teach them about his awesome resurrection. But they still don't get it, but they will. He says, you will not see me. But then he says, but you'll see me again. What? Yeah, you, 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 you don't see me, but you'll see me again. What in the world does that mean? You'll, you'll see me again. And so what I want you to think about is in this passage, Jesus is going to highlight and remind us today of the blessings and ecstasy of being a Christian. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but I want to point out several things that Christ is saying, hey, listen, even though it's going to be bad, it's going to be good. We have lasting blessings. He says, your grief will be turned into joy. When he used the, the woman, he says, no longer will she remember the anguish because of the joy. And this comes about in John chapter 20 when they saw him resurrected. It says, they were overjoyed. Jesus says, right now you have grief and sorrow and weep, but your heart will rejoice. And then he says, no one will take your joy from you. You can't, people steal everything nowadays. Now, now they tell you, don't, don't hold your cell phone out like this when you're in public on the bus. Somebody will grab your phone from you. But they can't grab your joy. The devil will want to take it away from you. So let's, let's talk about, because of this awesome resurrection of Christ, look what he's given us. Number one, because of this resurrection, it brings joy that is focused on Christ, who first focused on us. Now, this is kind of cool. In verse 16, he says, a little while longer and you won't see me. In the Greek, that means I'm not playing Marco Polo. And then he says, and again in a little while, you will see me. Peekaboo, Jack in the Box, what? This is the resurrection. You will see me. But then, ironically, in a few verses later, he doesn't say, you will see me. Go down to verse 22. He says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you. And what I want to remind you is that becoming a Christian starts with you seeing him and later learning that he saw you. This morning, a man walked up to me after the service. He goes, I've been listening to sermons for a while, but he goes, for the first time I heard today, I get it. I understand. It's another guy that was sitting right over here, and he told me six months ago, he goes, my eyes are open now. I get it. I see. I, I believe. This is why we sing Amazing Grace. I was lost, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. That's what we long for those of you who don't know Christ yet to see. And you go, wow, I learned that Jesus loves me. He died for me. He rose again. And I'm so glad that I chose to believe in him. And then Jesus says, I chose you. I saw you first. That's what he's saying. He says, you will see me. Paul describes it this way as he tells the Galatians. He says, remember when you first came to know God? Well, actually, he says, or you rather came to be known by God. And so what a joy we can have as Christians to have this Christ-centered, settled, focused 
joy because Jesus loves me and he set his, his love on me and he chose me and he bought me and he began a good work in me and nothing can separate me from that. And so I'm not making light of your pain, but, but rejoice today in the unspeakable joy that you know Christ. And he wants you to have more joy. The second blessing is that you can have more joy that comes from answered prayer because of Christ. Look at verse 23. In that day you will ask me no questions. In other words, once I'm out of the grave and I've poured out the Spirit, you're going to get it and you're going to learn how to pray. And he says, truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You know, and that really struck me this week as I was studying. Ask. That little word, ask. Somehow we're, we think we're bothering God. You are not bothering God. He's your father. He loves you. Jesus said it this way, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Part of prayer is the ministry of asking. It's not the only part, but it's a substantial part. It's believing, surrendered, asking, and expecting that God loves to give to his children. Paul said if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not freely give us all things? And so what a joy and a privilege. Jesus says in the midst of your coming agony to know that you can have the ecstasy of asking God. So I thought about it this weekend, it was my wife's birthday. And all of my kids were sitting around with their spouses, their fiance, my, my, my grandkids, and we're freely talking about Christ. And they're all walk, walking with Jesus and close to the Lord. And I am, hallelujah, I praise you, Jesus. But it wasn't always that way. But I asked and I asked and I asked. And I can tell you this, you will not bother God. I found a verse in Isaiah that says, you who remind the Lord, give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem. Pray and pray some more. And pray in Jesus' name. And pray that God will work in your life through the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing wrong with praying for joy. Jesus says in verse 24, ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Don't settle for the mediocrity of silence in prayer. Don't deceive yourself for the foolishness of selfishness in prayer. James says, you ask and you don't get things because you're asking with selfish motives, but he also says, you don't have because you don't ask. So we have this joy of knowing that I can have bold and continual prayers I have great joy in a loving father who wants to pour out his blessing on me. The third blessing, because Christ rises, is that I have joy focused on Christ who focuses on me, the joy of answered prayer. Third, I have peace that is informed and grounded in Christ. At the end of this chapter, we're going to come to verse 33. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace, Right? You can't have peace that is not biblically grounded and informed. It's not real peace then. You can have peace, but it's not Jesus' peace. 
He says, I want my peace to be in you. And he says, these things have I spoken to you so that in me you might have peace. You can go to Colorado and get something wrong with your eyes and get some peace. But it's not going to last when you smoke a joint. And you can have a drink and you can just get your chill on, but it's not lasting peace. You can trade your wife for a younger model and think you're having a good old time, but it's not real peace. And some of you are running around, but the Bible says there's no peace for the wicked. Till you come to Jesus and give your life to him and surrender to him, you will never have peace. But in Christ, Jesus says, I will give you peace. And that peace comes from being informed. It's grounded on his promises. These things have I spoken to you so that you might have peace. The Bible says God will keep him in perfect peace whose eyes are stayed on him. The psalmist said, Great peace have they who love God's word and nothing shall offend them. If you're not experiencing peace, and trust me, I get anxiety. I understand. I'm not saying every day we're just like, dude, I don't know why I'm so, I'm like so tranquil. I'm saying pray and believe and allow the Holy Spirit and the promises of God to bring rest to your soul until you can sing, though Satan should buffet and trials shall come, but this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And so praise the Lord that he's promised us peace, informed biblical peace. But I want to note something here, as it sounds so good, it does not exclude failure or trouble. So yeah, you have joy, you have answered prayer, you have peace, but it does not exclude failure or trouble. This is really interesting. Jesus is telling him, it's going to be so good. Look at verse 25. These things have I spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I'll speak no more to you in figurative language. And that day you'll ask in my name and you don't have to request the Father. I, I, will, I do not say I'll request the Father on your behalf for the Father loves you. And he, you believe that I came from him. I came from the Father, come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said to him, Wow, now you're speaking plainly. Verse 30, Now we know you know everything. We don't need anyone to question you. You don't need anyone to question you. We believe, Jesus, that you came from God. And Jesus is like, please stop. He goes, do you? Oh, you do. So, so you're in, huh? You're, you're boldly ready to follow me. Yes, we believe you came from God. He goes, well, how about this? An hour is coming when you are going to be scattered. A few more hours, we're going to be in this little garden with our sleeping bags, and 600 soldiers are going to show up with torches and clubs, and you're going to run like scared rabbits. And one of you is going to deny me three times. So please stop. You're going to fail. The reality is we all have failure. The Bible says the righteous falls seven times, but the Lord lifts him up. And the Bible's full of stories of Abraham, Jacob who deceived, Elijah, the suicidal coward for a moment, of David, the adulterer, of Jonah, the, the, the fleer, of John Mark, the lover of this world, of Peter, the denouncer, 
But you know what? If you're a Christian this morning, get over your failures. Now, let me be careful with that. Number one, repent of them. If you have not repented of your failures and you're a Christian, you're not going to get over them. But if you've repented of them, the Bible says you are forgiven of them. Satan will put the rearview mirror and you can spend the rest of your life just looking in the rearview mirror and drag you down. God cast your sins into the sea and the devil will reel them right up and just go, he's done with you. You need to get your Bible out and turn to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And some of you, today is the day of the second time. And Paul says, I forget what lies behind. There's no failure from your past that forfeit you from serving Christ in the future. So thank God that Jesus didn't say, you guys are all going to be scattered, you jerks. After all I did for you, I'm finished. He mercifully brings them to a place of usefulness. And that's how he's working in our life. So he says, you're going to have failure. And look at verse 33. You're going to have trouble. In the world, you have tribulation. Becoming a Christian does not take away your problems. Talked to a young man once. I said, man, you need to get some good Christian counseling. He said, well, I think counseling's for weak people. I said, exactly. And the sooner you and I realize that we're all weak people, the more we're in line with the grace of God to give us power in our weakness. So many of you are going through hard times. Jesus didn't say, in the world you will be exempt from troubles. In the world you will have tribulation. But he says, take courage. I have overcome the world. We have a conquering Christ. He conquered the curse for our sin. He conquered the fear of death. Hebrews 2 says he came that he might defeat Satan who held us with fear of death. He conquered the hopelessness of life without God. People, oh, I, I, I don't know what to do. The Bible says people without Christ have no God and no hope. We, he conquered hopelessness. He conquered the powers of this world. He conquered Satan who captured our souls. He, he decisively rescued us. In Revelation chapter 5 says, I wept because no one was earth worthy. And then Jesus comes on. He goes, rejoice. Here's the lion. He has overcome. He can open the seals. Jesus is Lord. He sits in heaven. All authority is his in heaven and on earth. And he is with us, not against us. And so I would encourage you to rejoice today. You're on the Lord's side. He's got work for you to do. So as we look at the world's ecstasy and the temporary agony, we go, but Christ is risen. Now I can have joy and peace and power in prayer. Now I can overcome failure and trouble by faith in the conquering Christ. And so as you, as, as you go home this week, maybe you're going through a hard time. I get that. But remember, the psalmist said, weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Know that trials will come. Pray ahead of time. Lord, strengthen me. If you're in the midst of pain and tribulation, the psalmist said, be strong. You go, my marriage is tough. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait patiently for the Lord. And say, well, maybe someday when good things happen, I'll rejoice. No, rejoice now. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. Paul said, I'm sorrowful 
Always rejoicing. As the tears are flowing down your face, let the Holy Ghost put a rainbow in them and come alongside and encourage one another as we struggle together. And lastly, as Benjamin comes, I want to ask a simple question. Whose side are you on? You can't be sort of a Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. You've either committed your life to Christ or you haven't. You're either a believer or you're lost. You're forgiven or you're condemned. And the Bible makes it clear that the way that you become a Christian is by faith. You believe that Christ died for you. But that faith is a repentant faith that says, I want to follow Christ. I'm willing to follow Christ. And part of being willing to follow Christ is that you confess that publicly. You don't care what people think about you. You care what Christ thinks about you. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. And so I want to give an invitation very quickly and very succinctly. If you have never chosen to follow Christ, if you've never understood that he died to save you, and today you want to become a Christ follower, right there in your seat, just say, Lord Jesus, I do believe you died for me, and I want to identify myself as a follower. As we begin to sing, I'm going to invite you just to get out of your chair and come and stand with me. That doesn't make you a Christian. You're not going to go to hell if you don't do that. But this is an opportunity for you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you're going public with that. And so we won't make a big deal. If the Spirit's moving in your heart, though, and you go, I want to follow Jesus. I believe. I want to be forgiven. Just come and demonstrate that you're a believer. Stand with me, and we'll rejoice and pray for you. So let's stay seated, and we're going to sing together. Jesus paid it all. And as we begin to sing, if the Lord's speaking to you, just come. Come.